0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are once again in Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. Proverbs chapter 9, headed towards one of my favorite verses in all of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or the foundation of wisdom, the founding principle of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In fact, my childhood pastor, Ken Jensen, wrote a book on Proverbs back in 1971, I think, or 72, something like that. And uh, it was based on this verse. This is where he got the the title of his book, Wisdom, the Principal Thing, and uh, wrote it. And uh, if you have that in your library, I was shocked. I had breakfast with Robert Jewell yesterday, and he has that book in his library. And I thought, wow, there's a a small world because it didn't have that wide of a circulation and something that was written in 1971. All right, but we're not quite there yet. We're still dealing with uh, the last issues here in this grace invitation. Uh, Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. In other words, it's not just simply an invitation to come and have a meal. It's uh, more than that. It's more than just a one-time thing whereby uh, then it's over and if you have the approach that salvation is the end of things that's the wrong approach salvation is the beginning of things and there's a whole christian way of life afterwards forsake your folly and live and that term folly is interesting because later in the chapter we have the woman of folly and uh, this woman that we've had she's just a horrible woman she's a strange woman a foreign woman a harlot and then she's had all kinds of names uh, through the first nine chapters um and this is our final glimpse of this woman uh, as uh, parental wisdom comes to an end here at the end of chapter 9. But she's called the woman of folly. And so we have folly with respect to the pursuit of uh, of this uh, illicit sexual activity. It's just folly. And uh, when it comes down to it so anyway this is where we are let's open the word of prayer ask the father to bless our time this morning appreciate well good thing we don't call this ladies class anymore this i've got more men this morning that's pretty cool all right let's open with a word of prayer almighty father we thank you for your truth we thank you for your faithfulness we thank you for proverbs Father, I do thank you for this midweek service and the the blessings that this class has been for a long, long time. Father, life of Christ for 10 years, life of David before that, life of Jacob way before that. And uh, and now, Father, in Proverbs, you have been blessing us. We uh, call upon your faithfulness for continued blessings. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. Equip us through this powerful text. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, this is the invitation, and this is the highlight here that Jesus Christ is delighted. He wants us to come and dwell, and the uh, the blessings related to this, and, and really it's it's the opposite of the, the bad gospel text of, uh, of Revelation 3, you know, that behold, I stand at the door and knock, and it's unfortunate that so many people use that in their evangelism, uh, because it's not Uh, The the imagery is backwards. The imagery is all wrong about Jesus outside and you've got to invite him into your heart or anything like that. Horrible, horrible evangelism technique. Um, But here we have kind of in a reverse order of that. We have a house that wisdom has built and the invitation is from wisdom to us. And we're the ones that need to come in and we need to come in and partake. And so that's the, uh, the the better imagery, the better metaphor related to this kind of invitation uh, being offered in a salvation uh, application. And so Jesus delights. He has his delight in the sons of men. We saw that in chapter 8, uh, the creator of the entire universe. He didn't delight in the Milky Way. He didn't delight in in and uh, the Andromeda galaxy. He didn't delight in even the planet per se, but his delight was in the sons of man. His delight is in the realm of creation that is in his image, in the image of God, that is mankind. Jesus is the God-man, the son of God, the son of man, and so for the sons of man, in the image of God, that's what he delights in, and, and even though it means he has to die, even though it means that he has to suffer to redeem, uh, to redeem us in, uh, in this way. So Jesus delights in the sons of men, and he delights in preparing dwelling places for them, and uh, the place to dwell, the place to eat, the place to fellowship, the place for all eternity that we will be in fellowship with the Father and the Son, is uh, what this beautiful metaphor is speaking of here. And yet, the invitation comes on the basis of grace. Freely it is offered, and freely it must be received. Uh, No one is being compelled. No one is being dragged. He doesn't send out soldiers to compel people. He sends out maidens to invite people, and uh, they are inviting, And, and the invitation, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. So it's a whosoever message, but it also must be responded to. The invitation has an expected response. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. And so the expected response to turn in, the expected response to come, the expected response to drink, the expected response to eat, these expected responses are all, within the metaphor, are all representative of faith. Faith is the expected response. God is making an offer. God has made provision. God has done all the work. Faith is not a work. Faith is a response because God has done all the work. And on the basis of that finished work, God is giving the offer. Nevertheless, there is a required expected response. And without faith, no one gets saved. All right? Without faith, the, the 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 house is still there. The pillars are still there. The food is still there. The feast is still there. Everything is still there. But without the faith response, that person who rejects it has no benefit of anything that was prepared. And that's the nature of it. We understand total um, depravity of humanity. We understand the unlimited atonement of Jesus Christ. The provision has been made for everybody. Not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Everybody falls under that, that category of whosoever, right? Whosoever will, may come. And uh, we have, I think, a very clear picture of it right here as well as Isaiah 55 and, and other places in, in the Old and New Testament. And so under subpoint point F, uh, last week we were looking at this invitation, and it is a grace invitation, that it must be volitionally accepted as the naive turns in to enter, the naive is is not headed that way. The naive has to turn. Pethy has to turn, right? And we're going to see the naive uh, yeah, a little bit later because there's the fool and then there's the naive, there's the scoffer, there's the wicked man. We've got those characters coming up. Uh, but the naive turns in to enter and the verb of sewer. We want to get our minds into the sewer, right? You almost never hear pastors tell you that. They typically say, take your mind out of the sewer. But the Hebrew word sewer it uh, doesn't mean the English word sewer, it just sounds like it. The, the Hebrew word sewer is the verb to turn. And you have to turn when you're facing one way and you've got to face a different way. And if, uh, if you're not headed into, into a place, then you have to turn in order to get into a place. And that's what's happening here. Um, the, the unbeliever is not, on his own, is not just going to blindly walk into eternal life. No unbeliever is just going to walk into it. Because he's not walking that way. He has to turn. And that turn comes on the basis of the invitation, on the basis of having the door made known. This is the door. This is the the palace. This is the feast. Turn in here. Don't turn in there or there or there or there. Turn in here. See? The invitation must be volitionally accepted. The metaphoric use of drinking and eating equates to the volitional response of faith. And that's true in Proverbs, that's true in Isaiah, that's true in John. The metaphor of eating speaks of faith. The metaphor of drinking speaks of faith. And, and it does so not only in Hebrew, not only in Greek, not only in biblical languages, but in modern languages. In English today we have the idiom. In English today you may have a skeptic that uses this very language, this very idiom. And when they mock you for it, they become the the uh the folly they become the scoffer and we're going to get to that the scoffer in in verse seven and uh the scoffer reprove a scoffer and don't reprove a scoffer in verse seven and verse eight and we may encounter scoffers you probably have several in your daily life all right and the scoffer may ask you they may be incredulous they can't believe that you you believe all this bible stuff right and and they, they may even use the idiom they might say i can't believe you've swallowed all that right you've swallowed it hook line and sinker we 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 use the language of swallowing something as an idiom for faith acceptance as an idiom for believing something as a as a idiom for uh yeah, yeah, I swallowed that of course I swallowed that see, so even modern English uses the expression uh that that eating and drinking equates to uh, a response, the volitional response of faith, when a person accepts and receives the divine provision. So I won't take you back through those verses. That was last week's message. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and if I went back today, I'd spend too much time on it, I think, because I enjoy those verses a lot, um, particularly because there's all that hostility Jesus is dealing with. And the the, the Pharisees and the other critics and folks, They uh, they they're, they're Not liking what he's saying about eating his flesh, and they're kind of scornful about it, and so he doesn't back down. He does not back down, not for a minute. He says, "Oh, all right," and then he adds to it, drinking blood. You know, so here's the audience that's already on edge, not liking the eating the flesh language, and so he just says, "Okay," and then he adds to it with drinking blood. You know, and he says, "To me." I find that an interesting illustration of, of concepts we're going to get to here in verses seven and eight. That says you don't know those guys anything. They hate you. They hate the truth. Don't don't even give them an answer. Okay, and we're going to talk about that. Pearls before swine and the issues there related to why are you wasting your time? They don't want truth. They're scoffing. You got other things to do. We'll talk about that as well. So uh, the the pattern of Jesus there in, in in John I think is remarkable when when he just builds on the, the the eating the flesh he builds on it with drinking the blood and he's absolutely truthful in all that he's doing and he's responding to that to that conflict in uh, I think uh, an adversarial way we might learn from that all right we also uh, recognize that this is not the end eating is only step one step one is to receive life. Step two is to proceed in the Word of God. All right? And this is huge. And I want to stress this as well. And even if we saw these verses last week, it was towards the end of the hour, and we're running out of time, and I was going way too fast. And it's definitely worth looking at them again and reminding ourselves that simply receiving life is not the end of the will of God. We are saved in the good works that are prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The goal is not to get saved. The Great Commission is not to... you know, scatter across the planet, get a bunch of people saved. The the Great Commission is to make disciples, whereby salvation is step one. <clears throat> Getting them to live in the Word of God is step two. You know, how many non-disciples? I, I, I think Austin is full of regenerate people that are not disciples. And uh, uh, a fellow I had breakfast with yesterday was saying uh, that he encounters a ton of folks that have been burned uh, they're, they're they're church refugees. They they've been burned. They've been hurt. They've had uh, they've encountered legalists. They've encountered ugly Christian people. They've encountered uh, charlatan pastors or whatever money grubbers. And anyway, they've had bad experiences in churches in the past. And so they've walked out and they've kind of said, no, "I'm never again." You know, they're not going to go back to church ever again. That's they're, they're done with that kind of hypocrisy. And how many disciples or how many regenerate people are truly born again, they're saved, they're going to go to heaven when they die, but they're not disciples because of that kind of, of uh, background, the damage that's been done. So I think he called them uh, church casualties. They had some kind of term. I, I should have written it down so I could steal it and use it in my preaching. Um, but th- that's, they should be targets in our, in our discipleship uh, mission because they need to be made disciples. See? And they're already one step ahead of the program because they're saved. They have eternal life. Let's work in that. So Proverbs 9, 6, forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. You know, they have life, now they can live it. You know, Jesus Christ said, I've come that they would have life and what else? That they might have it. Yeah, you know the verse, have it abundantly, have it in abundance. And so folks are saved, they have life but they're not living in the Word of God, so they don't have it in abundance. And they're not abundantly living the life that they have. And that's, I think that's the shame. Right? We make two mistakes, by and large. In I say we. Christians without appropriate teaching make the mistake of preaching the lifestyle instead of giving the gospel. And instead of preaching the gospel, they're preaching a lifestyle. And they're thumping their Bible, and they're telling fornicators to quit fornicating and whatever. Don't preach the lifestyle until they have the life. Well, what's the point in doing that? Preaching the Christian way of life to somebody that's still in the unregenerate life in Adam? There's no point in that. Preach the gospel. Once they receive the life, once they receive the truth, um, then, once they're born again, then start teaching them in the Word of God. Let the Word of God do its work. Let them be transformed in their thinking. Once they're transformed in their thinking, the doing will follow suit. Preach the lifestyle before they have the life. What What a cart before the horse kind of a thing. So, But that's one mistake. The other mistake, though, I think, is to preach the gospel, to provide the life, and then never give the follow-up, never give the discipleship, the living in the Word of God where that life is the abundant life, where they're actually living the life that they have. See, if you have Zoe life, shouldn't you want to live the Zoe life? Is, Is it a life that you just have or is it a life that you live? See? I think the New Testament describes both. And so Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Here it is, the Great Commission. We taught it in some detail in our Life of Christ series. Interestingly enough, this is pre-Pentecost. So does it apply to the church? Or does it apply to, is it only for Israel? And as I taught it, I believe it does apply to the church that we are under the concept and under the principle we are making disciples because God desires discipleship in the church age just as God desires discipleship in the tribulation and God desires discipleship in the millennium. It is on the basis of heavenly authority that has a reflection on the earth. So I think the church age is very appropriate for the Great Commission. But it's a discussion that ought to be had because I think... uh, People put ecclesiastical emphasis on something that actually is secondary. It's Israel primary. But uh, anyway, that's, if you want more on that, we taught that in the life of Christ. So uh, the eleven disciples, because Judas is dead by now. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And I think Matthias was present. He just was not yet numbered with the eleven. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. We've got this dynamic, this uh, bi-location dynamic of heaven and earth. Heavenly authority, earthly application. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Make disciples. And we have the noun methetes that's, that's turned into a verb. So uh, the, the noun is disciple or student or learner somebody who learns and the verb mathetuo means turn somebody into a mathetai right into a mathetai's turn somebody into a disciple turn a whole lot of somebody's into a whole lot of disciples and if you turn them into disciples you have fulfilled this verb all right make disciples of all the gentiles of all the nations Again, that's appropriate in a dispensation of Israel context when the Jewish people are the stewards and their uh, ministry is towards the Gentile nations. But it's also appropriate in the church age, whereby we're neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. We can make our own application. Baptizing them or identifying them in the name singular of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the participles here that define this The participles that define this tell you how to make disciples. Discipleship means you baptize them and you teach them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. The content of teaching them is all that I commanded you. It's not necessarily teaching them the whole counsel of the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation. But, You don't have to communicate 1189 chapters or 33,410 verses, okay, in order to make a disciple. See, have you learned all, every verse of the Bible? Well then, you know, if that's the definition of what it means to be a disciple, then none of us are disciples and we'll never be disciples. But specifically, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, that seems to be a finite body. That's a finite curriculum right there. That's a curriculum. You know, if you're, if you're spelling out a curriculum for a, a training ministry or a school or, a, or anything, then you want to know, well, what's the, what's the material? What's the first class, the next class, the third class? You know, you want to have a whole syllabus, you know, to break down every class that's necessary and what's required for graduation. Do you have to have algebra for graduation? You know, things like that. Uh, what do you have to have? What's the curriculum for discipleship? And if you leave it out... Have you failed to make a disciple? See, and if you've included it incorrectly, you know, do you have to know superlapsarianism? Do you have to know? Uh, you know I just like throwing out big, complicated theological words. Sometimes I throw them out and I forgot what they actually mean because it was a long time ago when I read some of those things. Um, the traducian view, uh, you know, do, you, do they have to know that to be a disciple? Other things, okay. Well, lo, uh, he says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And and I believe it's the content of the upper room discourse. It's the content of John 13 through 17. It's the content of that night in which he was betrayed. Because that's what he referred back to when he appeared to them in the upper room and when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And we taught the great cognition that preceded the great commission in the the back-to-back lessons there in Life of Christ. And so that being the case, then the Bible itself gives us the uh, the boundaries for the the curriculum for discipleship. Disi- you know, I should write this and get a get a book in, in the, on the shelves and make millions um, in in the, the Christian bookstores because there's no shortage of discipleship books in the in the bookstores. I mean, there's there's aisles and aisles that have discipleship as the heading um, in the in the bookstores, right? The Christian bookstores. But here we have the definition of discipleship. It is baptizing them and teaching them. And the content of what you have to teach them is, I believe, the upper room discourse of John 13 through 17. Okay, If it's not that, then it's the content of everything Jesus spoke in his earthly ministry. Because it's teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. But that, I think, fails. Because much of what he commanded applied to Israel in the Old Testament, or in, in, in the Gospels, would not apply to the church in our application. So anyway, I take it as the upper room discourse content of John 13 through 17. If you teach those chapters, in other words, if, if, some, if you lead somebody to Christ this afternoon, and then you spend the next two or three weeks with them, spend the next month with them, however long, spend time with them, get them grounded in the truth. Start with John 13 through 17. Start with those red letter verses in those chapters, okay? And you can, you know, just the, the second half of chapter 13, you, when, when Judas walks out and the door closes, and, 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 and when Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Start with that verse and go to the end of chapter 17. All right? That is the content for, for the church. It's the preview of the church. It's the grounding of a believer in truth and they're going to get rapture, they're going to get Holy Spirit, they're going to get confession of sin, they're going to get prayer, they're going to get, they're going to get abiding in the Word, the, the John 15 abiding chapter, they're going to get uh, the, the, uh, the priestly function of prayer in the, in the great prayer of John 17. They're going to get a curriculum of discipleship there, and when you walk them through all that and teach all that, you have made a disciple, baptizing them and teaching them. All right. So much more on this, man. The um, here's another question. If you were in the class, you can answer. So don't answer. If you were not in the class, here's a question for you. If um, who who is it? And and it's kind of a trick question. I'm going to give it away. If I don't answer, I got to ask it in a clever way so I don't give it away in the question. But it's a no-brainer, right? Who do you who do you evangelize? Do you give the gospel? Who do you give the gospel to? Who is it that you need to, to bring to faith in Christ? It's the unbeliever, right? Who is it that you need to disciple? A, a born-again non-disciple, right? And so here, here's the question then. If, um, uh, okay, I'll ask for a show of hands. If, if you're a disciple, raise your hand. And I hope everyone in this room raises their hand. And, okay, good. And So my question is now, If you are a disciple, can I, Matthew 2, owe you? All right, And that blows minds because they've walked down those aisles in in the bookstores and they have this definition of what discipleship means. And they think discipleship is an older brother coming alongside and encouraging a younger brother. Or the discipleship is an older sister coming alongside and encouraging a younger sister. And they have a definition of discipleship that has nothing to do with Matthew 28 with baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Discipleship, mathetuo means turn somebody into a mathetes. Turn somebody into a mathetes. So if they are a mathetes, how do you turn them into a mathetes? The answer is you can't, and you don't. You don't disciple disciples. You disciple Non-disciples. You turn non-disciples into disciples. And then, once they are disciples, of course, the older brothers are going to come alongside the younger brothers, and the older sisters are going to come alongside the younger sisters. Of course, that happens. But that's not discipleship. Okay? So I'm going to write that book and make millions, and you heard it here first. (laughs) My, My book will effectively empty the shelves of all those other discipleship books and uh, redefine what people think they're reading when they're walking down that aisle. Anyway, yeah, I'm going to single-handedly overcome English usage in in, uh, Christendom. All right, Colossians 1, 9 through 12. Again, the point is this. Step one is to receive life. Step two is to proceed in the Word of God. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Not the order we'll teach it, but the order in your Bible. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it. Now understand, these guys are believers. He's given thanks for them. Back in verse 3, he's praying for them. In verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. They're believers. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This was a marvelous church. The hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So they received the gospel and they're walking in faith, hope and love. You know, there's a lot of churches that didn't have faith, hope, and love, and they've got all three. Even, I think, uh, even Thessalonica had faith and hope, but I don't, I don't think they had two of the three, but Colossae has all three. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, he has also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So here's Paul, and he's celebrating. He's happy. He's rejoicing that Epaphras had such fruit there in Colossae. He's not grumbling and whatever, you know, that competitive thing about, you know, who's this Epaphras guy think he is? I should have gone in there. I should have had a ministry there. None of that. He's excited. But then he adds to that because just getting saved isn't enough. So for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, you're supposed to know the will of God. And that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We're supposed to grow. We're supposed to proceed in the word of God. We know His will. We're pleasing Him. We're serving Him. We're working. And we're getting to know Him better and better every day. Strengthened with all power. That means we're enduring our testing because He's only going to strengthen us when we're weak. It's only when we're weak that we're going to be strong. So strengthen with all power means we're, we're enduring the testing. According to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You know what that inheritance is all about? We're sharing it right now. People think that the only thing that we share in is the reward when we get there or the glory when it happens, or the the kingdom when it arrives, or the good stuff when we get it. No, we're sharing now. And the inheritance of the saints of light right now includes the suffering, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable to his death, completing what is lacking in in Christ's afflictions. And, And what a thrill, what a joy. I count it a blessing that he allows us to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. So you get an email and you get a prayer request and you learn about a struggle that a family is going through and you're learning about this and you realize, you know what, that's my struggle too. Because it's theirs, it's mine. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. And so uh, there you have it. We have the blessing there. And then finally 1 Timothy 2, four. 1 Timothy two four. I used to say back when I was a young pastor. I used to say I never turned down an opportunity to turn to Timothy. But it's been a while since I've used that expression. Now that was a, that was a expression I used. I probably beat it to death and got teased for it. And so I made a point to quit using it, like minding your own MP3 business. I'm done using that one. That's that's old. All right, First Timothy two four. Notice. Here's a good context. We had a primary runoff election yesterday. Uh, how, do we, how do we operate within our nation? How do we operate within our culture? Do we vote? Do we support our nation? Do we pray? First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is our bios life, all right? Tranquil and quiet. We want to have, uh, you know, would you much rather live in, in Texas or Somalia? You know, well, um, I think it's obvious, but why? All right? And it's not for the the wealth, it's not for the food, it's not for the plumbing, it's not for the electricity, it's not for the uh, you know the, the gunmen or the, the beheaders or the Allah Akbar screamers or anything like that, it is because this is a place of tranquility and peace whereby we have freedom to assemble together and study the Word of God. And we can live the word of God, and we want to keep in prayer. and we want to vote, we want to pray for our leaders that that freedom continues. And this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. And to get other people saved and to get other people saved and get other people saved in a great big, you know, um, pyramid scheme. (laughs) No, not what it says. It's not about get people saved who can get people saved who can get people saved who can get, it's bigger than that. Who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Honestly, now, those are two different things. If you equate those two, it's, it's, a bad, it's bad grammar to equate those two. They're two different things, all right? Getting saved, you say, well, isn't that the same? Am I not coming to the knowledge of Jesus when I get saved? You, you, you're coming to Jesus, but how much do you know of, about Jesus? How ignorant are you when you are saved? I would submit that the only thing you know is that you're saved, (laughs) right? I would submit that that gospel information that has come to you has has caused you to respond and you have responded in faith. And and so now you know, what do you know? I know I'm not going to go to hell when I die. I know that my sins are forgiven. I know that I have eternal life. What else do I know? I know what? How dumb are you when you get saved? Not dumb, ignorant, okay? And unfortunately, I think, we are more ignorant than we sometimes recognize because sometimes I think we know more than we do. There's stuff that the unbeliever thinks he knows about those religious people. He's got some misperceptions. He's got some assumptions about Bible thumpers. He's got some, uh, some, uh, some concepts of what it means to be saved or what it means to be religious, right? And, and sometimes the first order of business is when they truly do get saved, they have to unlearn a whole lot of religious assumptions that they had before they got saved. They start to learn about grace. They start to learn about things from the Word of God, and they realize they had a lot of assumptions they were making about what those Bible thumpers really were. Say, well, God desires for all men to be saved, and more than that, to come to the knowledge of the truth. And yeah, you can say it is idiomatic, or it is an equivalent expression that. There is—I mean—there are other passages where you can say that knowing Christ is, you know, a, an equivalent term to being saved. I'm determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I mean, there are other passages that use similar expressions, but this passage is so much bigger than that. And there's knowing, and then there's knowing, right? Like there's—we talked this morning about seeing and seeing. There's knowing, and then there's knowing. I think this, pa- pa- this passage is bigger than just getting saved. You know, and and obviously, if you got saved in, in whenever, um, you know, I think Ethel still holds the record at least this morning in this room. Um, but and whatever, I don't care if you were saved this morning or you were saved in the in the 1940s, right, um, or somewhere in between. Whenever it was you got saved, was it the 1940s? 50. Okay, 1950. All right. Regardless. You know him better today than you knew him in 1950. (laughs) We all do. I know Jesus a whole lot better than I I knew Jesus in in September of 1973. And I'm going to know him better next year. I'm going to know him better the year after that if if he delays long enough. And then when the trumpet sounds, I'm going to be with him forever. I'm going to keep knowing him better and better and better without end. See, what a joy. That never stops. It shouldn't stop. All right. Kind of a neat illustration on your 25th wedding anniversary, right? (laughs) Do I know Sharon better than I knew her uh, in 1991? I hope so. You know, because we've had 9,132 days to, uh, you know, get to know each other. All right, let's move on to the scoffing scoffer. Back to Proverbs 9. The scoffing scoffer. There were two previous passing references to the scoffing scoffer, Proverbs 1.22 and Proverbs 3.34. We'll see them in the sub I don't know that we need to actually turn there right at this moment. The scoffing scoffer had two previous passing references, but he has a more complete address here, verses 7 through 12. And I'm going to take this as a unit, Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 12. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. So it starts with that. Some might uh, end the context with verse 8 or verse 9. I prefer to take it all the way down, including 10, 11, and 12, because uh, we've got scoffing in verse 12 as well. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. And if you scoff, you alone will bear it. And so the... the, um, contrast between wisdom and scoffing, and the really the, the, the choose you this day, what you will do uh, uh, attitude uh, shows up there in verse 12. So I'm going to handle 7 through 12 as a unit before we uh, turn to the, the woman of folly uh, to wrap up the chapter in, in 13 through 18. So the, uh, the scoffer had two previous passing references but it has more, a more complete address here. There will be 10 appearances total when we cross into chapter 10 and move into the next, really, the the, the daily... I haven't settled in my mind what I'm going to call chapters 10 through 24 yet. But when we get to chapters 10 through 24, we're leaving the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs. And in 10 through 24, we're going to get into the practical living section of Proverbs. All right? And uh, in that section, in 10 through 24... The Solomonic portion, although that's that's a bad label too. See, what happens in Proverbs 25 is we get additional proverbs that get added to the canon. That uh, that uh, uh, Hezekiah and his men they they compile additional proverbs. They they make use of it in their day and age, and it gets added to the Solomon collection. But I think most of them were Solomon's anyway, even in chapters 25 and belong and beyond. But they were added to the canon in that day. Nevertheless, in 10 through 24, there are 10 additional scoffer references, so so stay tuned. Everything we're going to see related to the scoffer today in in this class uh, will come back again 10 times in in those 15 chapters, all right? Let's look at chapter 1, because there's a trio of naive scoffer and fool. The trio of naive scoffer and fool was invited in chapter 1 to partake of wisdom, so, subpoint A in the outline: the trio of naive, scoffer, and fool. There's a music trio for you. It's like Crosby, Stills, and Nash, right? It's uh, naive, scoffer, and fool. I'm not, I'm not sure if they toured under those under those names. What kind of audience they might build? They're invited in chapter one to partake of wisdom. Proverbs one twenty-two. Proverbs 1.22. How long, O oh naive ones, this is pethy, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. And so we've got this rhetorical question, this devise. How long? How long are you going to stay naive? Because there's a, there's a provision for that. How long are you going to uh, scoff? There's a provision for that. Unfortunately, what they scoff at is the provision for that. And fools, there's a provision for that. How long are you going to stay foolish? There's a provision for that. Unfortunately, they hate the provision that they will take care of their foolishness. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. Anyway, this is what we dealt with back in uh in chapter one. So it was an invitation. And and it's it's kind of interesting what we might do if uh if we leave things in an invitation basis. See, the uh, uh the, the rejection, the not giving an answer, the not answering a fool according to his folly, the not casting your pearls before swine, the um the admonition to not talk to these fools, all right? Don't talk to these scoffers. Um, Because if you do, they will turn and injure you, right? Now, you may be willing to bear that injury, and you may be willing to do that, but is that what God's asking you to do? And and what is He asking you to do if you're just blowing them off? Or is there an invitation when their attitude changes? Say... And I'm giving it away. (laughs) But that's my approach. And that's what I believe this text is saying. That's what I believe Matthew is talking about when Jesus uh, speaks about pearls before swine. Is that um, I have nothing to say to you today. But there may come a day All right, There may come a day that you really do want to know the answers. That you do really want to know the truth. And when that day comes you will be welcome to attend Austin Bible Church. You will be welcome to come and, and learn some some wisdom, all right? But today, I've got no answers for you. You don't want to hear it anyway. And and this is a conversation I'm not having. And so in in the not casting pearls before a swine, there still is an opportunity. I think that's compatible here in in Proverbs 1. Uh, How long, oh naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? So if if you love being an idiot, hey, enjoy. But when you've decided that that's long enough, (laughs) okay? When you answer this how long question and say that's long enough, I'm ready for these answers, come find me. I'll be happy to give you those answers. Likewise, how long, scoffers, are you going to delight yourself in scoffing? Okay? Because whenever you're done with that how long answer, I think it's long enough right now, but if you want to continue, well then let me know when you're done. All right? When you're done scoffing, Come talk to me because as long as you're still scoffing, I have nothing to say. Likewise, how long you fool will you hate knowledge? Oh, if he hates knowledge, what are you going to give him? Right? But when he's decided that's long enough, when he's decided that uh, he's got to stop hating the thing that's going to remedy his foolishness, then come talk to me. Then I've got answers for you. My feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I'm, I'm ready to give an account of the hope that is within me, yet with gentleness and reverence. I'm ready to give an account to anyone who asks when they're asking, when it's a legitimate question, when they are truly asking. But if they're hating, if they're mocking, if they're scoffing, then they're not asking, and I'm, I'm still ready. Just come back when you're ready, okay? Is that making sense? And I think that will help us as we approach the uh, don't give an answer uh, admonition here. So, we have this trio of naive, scoffer, and fool. And and in some cases, maybe it's useful to... Uh, I, I enjoy the the, the descriptions that the, the Bible has here. And maybe it might help shape your, your prayer life if you're encountering a, an, an adversary of whatever sort. Um, possibly it helps... Uh, or not just to say okay well that's 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 a uh, that's a scoffer that's a fool that's a, that's a naive one all right and and if you can identify and it's useful useful to identify uh and 1 1st Thessalonians there's the same thing too where we're supposed to identify help the weak encourage the faint hearted bind up the broken be patient with all men right it's useful to to kind of categorize the struggle that that person is going through so that you don't misdiagnose your activity your your expected uh response so that could be useful as well So that's the use in chapter one in chapter three the lord himself was scoffing because he's scoffing at the scoffers the lord himself was scoffing you know if someone's going to scoff at you for believing creationism and whatever well you know god scoffs right back say what are you a big banger (laughs) <laughs> what are you, uh, uh, a Darwinian? You're telling me it's good to you by way of the zoo? What, what are you talking about? And, uh, and just you know, it's uh, it's an attention getter if nothing else. It's a biblical m- mode of communication. Proverbs three thirty four. Proverbs three ended with some fundamental contrasts. And if you go back and look through your Proverbs three notes, you'll see the fundamental contrasts that, uh, that, that close this chapter. And so uh, in verse 32, you'll notice the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. And that's, that's just black and white right there. That's either or. That's a fundamental contrast. the devious with the up with the uh, upright, the abomination versus the intimate. And uh, I mean it's just plain as as anything. And and we're not allowed to talk about it. I mean abomination is hate speech. Uh, the, The world doesn't want to hear you use a word like abomination but the Bible uses it. And an abomination is something that you want so far away from you it's abhorrent. It is abhorrent. So you push it away. You want it as far away as possible. In fact Pushing is too close, because at arm's length, you still have to touch it to push it away. And an abomination, you don't want that close at all. But intimate is the opposite. With intimate, you're hugging, right? I don't have to illustrate hugging this morning, but, you know, there's a difference between pushing away and hugging. See? Fundamental contrast. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked. But He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. So what house do you live in? Okay, Positional truth. Are you still in the domain of darkness? Or have you been delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son? Are you, uh, have you passed from death into life? It's an either or. It's a fundamental contrast. And one is uh, lined up for cursing and one is lined up for blessing. Fundamental contrast. Verse 34. He scoffs at scoffers, yet He gives grace to the afflicted. He gives grace to the afflicted. This, by the way, is the fundamental contrast that uh, between the proud and the humble that James quotes and Peter quotes. This is what gets adapted into the New Testament. that says God is opposed to the proud and he gives grace to the humble. All right. The basis for that comes back to Proverbs, comes back to here. And I think it helps to flesh out the New Testament understanding of what does it mean to be proud and what does it mean to be humble. And uh, exactly how opposed is God? I mean, what do we mean by opposed? He's opposed to the proud. Well, what does that mean? You know, I'm opposed to a lot of things. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about You know, I'm opposed to the designated hitter, but I don't get worked up about it. Um, you know, what are you opposed to? Um, <laughs> God is opposed to the proud. What does that mean? That means he scoffs at the scoffers. That kind of doesn't that add an extra bit of A dimension of of detail they're scoffing he's scoffing right back he who sits in the heavens laughs what is our attitude yet he gives grace to and then why are they humble because they've been humbled they've been afflicted they've been they've been through the mill and there's grace that comes in that uh, in that capacity Finally, in verse thirty five, the last of the fundamental contrast is the wise and the fool. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. That's how chapter three came to an end. And so those were the first two little glimpses, just in passing, not a large development, not a not certainly not a comprehensive treatment about what do we do with these scoffers? Just kind of passing references. Um, we should invite them to partake. And understand that uh, the Lord is scoffing at them. Now we get our first development. And in this passage, we have an explanation. This passage explains why a believer may choose to not communicate truth. You have the truth. You know the truth. But you may choose to shut your mouth. (laughs) Right? There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. And this isn't one of them, all right? The trick is figuring out which one it is and which one it isn't. There's a time. Time for everything under the sun, right? There's a time. A time to speak, a time to be silent. There's a time to build, a time to uproot, there's a time to... Anyway, we get that. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 3. But what does it say? He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. It doesn't produce anything. And it comes back at you. It boomerangs. It comes back at you. And you do nothing whatsoever for the other guy. And it comes back at you in a hostile way with damage. Damage gets done. It hurts. Now, I understand there's people that will look at that and say, well, I don't care. I, I'm, I'm willing to suffer that because Jesus called me to suffer. Well, in this world, I will have tribulation. Yes, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus has promised that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And everything that will come to us, yes, I get that. That's a principle. But none of those principles of what Jesus told us ever says Go ahead and heap it on yourself. Right? It doesn't invite you to say, well, you're going to get it anyway, so pile on. Yes. I think um, just the opposite. When it says, when, when Jesus is warning against stumbling blocks, he says, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. Just don't you be the stumbling block. Don't you be the one that causes the brother to stumble. And the the doctrine there tells you, or the principle in that doctrine, tells you that there are sufficient stumbling blocks already in the world without you adding to the pile. (laughs) Okay? And I would take that principle and bring it here, to this application, and say, this world has sufficient um, insults and hatred and hostility, and there is enough... There's enough haters out there that are going to be directing their fire against you as it is. You have no need to add fuel to the fire. You have no need to provoke even more. Why why would you invite even more? Particularly when we have the admonition to not do it. When we have the admonition to do not give your pearls to the swine, or, or give your bread to the dogs don't do it so if the Bible says don't do it then don't do it now if if verse 7 sat by itself I might agree with you might but verse 7 doesn't sit by itself it's followed it up with verse 8 see verse 7 it's the he who does this gets this alright and you say you're willing to do that alright But then verse 8 says, don't do it. Don't reprove a scoffer. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. There is an object for your reproof, and the object for your reproof is the wise man, not the scoffer. The wise man, not the, the hater. Anyway. Sometimes it's good to stop and ask yourself, how much time do I have? (laughs) right? You know, and then I start looking around and I see the body of Christ and I see in particular the local assembly that is Austin Bible Church because that's the body of Christ that I'm accountable for. Shepherd the flock of God among you, right? Um, I'm not accountable to, to, you know, for any other flock but this one. I'm not accountable uh, for even good flocks, even even You know, uh, if I'm a guest speaker in somebody else's flock, I'm just a guest speaker. That's their flock. I'm not going to go into Lost Pines and and tell them what to do or rebuke or correct. I I leave that with their pastor. Their shepherd will deal with that. They have to correct one another, just as you and I have to correct one another. This is our mission field right here in our mutually, reciprocally edifying one another imperatives of the New Testament. I'm not here to straighten out all the methodists or all the lutherans or all the baptists or all the whatever okay i'm here i mean cuz ask yourself how much time do you have oh my goodness you know i i got to straighten out all these other things what what am i doing but a wise man is the, are there are are there plenty of rebukes that are necessary in this flock reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction okay that's the imperative for the for the uh, uh Pastor, as per 2 Timothy. Alright, so do not, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man. He will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man. He will increase in his learning. And so in these activities we have the appropriate objects of these activities. The appropriate objects of these activities are The one another, the the wise men, those that are seeking wisdom, those that have the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is the understanding. And these are the issues here. So uh, these are the targets for our edifying ministry. Who is not our target? Well, the the scoffer is not our target. He's scoffing at everything we're going to tell him anyway. Why Why am I telling him what he's scoffing at? See, the the, the the naive person is just ignorant. He's he's foolish, and there's and we've t- discussed the difference between naive and foolish. And and he's he's naive. He needs wisdom. He needs to grow up. If he's if he's tired of being naive, he wants to grow up. That's the, you can work with that. You can absolutely work with that. But the scoffer. Here's the thing. The scoffer knows what you're going to say anyway, and he hates it. He's going to reject it. He doesn't want to know. He's not asking so that that he can get information. He's scoffing at everything you tell him. So why are you wasting your time? Scripture tells you not to. I'm going to get to Matthew 7 here in a moment, but how how do the Psalms even start? Right, What is Psalm 1 about? How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. It's the same scoffer we're dealing with, the same vocabulary we're dealing with here in Proverbs 9. The scoffers. And and it's a beautiful progression here. The poetry is gorgeous. There's walking, there's standing, and then there's sitting. Isn't that something? So you're walking, or you're standing. So in other words, you've stopped your walk. You're standing in the path of sinners. You've stopped your walk. You're not walking anymore, you're not advancing the Christian walk, the Christian way of life. You know, you're standing. And then you sit down. <laughs> now you're really not walking. Now you now you went and you planted your, your 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 seat in a seat somewhere and you're sitting you're now you're sitting with scoffers. And how long does that take? You know? There's no end to it. The scoffers never stop scoffing. All right, Matthew chapter seven and verse six. And what I love about this, of course, is that um, it, this verse, and along with all these other verses, prove that Matthew chapter 7 is longer than just verse 1. <laughs> okay? Because I get all these people that want to hit me upside the head with, judge not, lest you be judged. And, they, and, they, and these, these, these people just want to act like Matthew 7, 1 is all by itself in the chapter, the only verse in the Bible, it's the only verse they know. And it's just because they want me to leave them alone and whatever. And honestly, I'm not judging them. Scripture's judging them, and someday Jesus Christ is going to judge them. But um, anyway. So yeah, there's more verses than just verse 1. And and the full context here, from 1 to 2 all the way down through 5, and then verse 6, okay? We have the hypocrite, and you're going to take the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What's that about? Means you are taking remedial action for your brother in Christ. He has a speck in his eye. He needs help. And you're going to provide the doctrinal information. You're going to reprove. You're going to rebuke. All right? But you're not going to rebuke a scoffer. And you're not going to rebuke a fool. You don't want that speck in there. He's humble. He fears the Lord. And so long as you got the log out of your eye, you can take this speck out here. But do not, and it's in that context then when it says do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before a swine. Those are imperatives. Those are commands. Prohibitions. Or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. See? And I would put forth that whatever believer says, well, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. I love Jesus. I think that is just as arrogant as Peter saying, I'll never deny you, Lord. Really? So you're going to defy Jesus' command that says don't do this because you're willing to face the consequences? What's that? I think it's arrogance. I think it's a Peter syndrome. Don't do that. Find other ways to show you love the Lord besides disobeying His command. Anyway. Thank you, Father, for your truth, for your faithfulness, for Proverbs chapter 9, for giving us just a little bit more on this day. Father, bless us through your word. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.